today's episode, we'll be exploring the world of industrial B2B marketing, sales, and customer experience. Now, before you say that's not for me, know that this interview covers a wide range of marketing challenges and successes that can span any industry, like mergers and acquisitions, building new brands, aligning sales and marketing, and even targeting an evolving audience. These topics are something that all marketers must be shaking our heads to. So to dig in, I sat down with Tony Fuller, the Vice President and Global Sales Lead at Federal Signal, an American manufacturer of a wide range of environmental and infrastructure equipment. Federal Signal is a diverse company that owns multiple brands and serves multiple industries, and they do so through both a direct and a distribution network. So you can only imagine the complex sales challenges that Tony encounters on a daily basis, and he's been doing this now for over 30 years. I met Tony through a mutual contact, and the first thing I was told about him is how relational he is. The agency that I run, Symantle, was recently engaged for a research project with the organization, so I had the opportunity to sit on their sales call and watch Tony in action. I noticed immediately how engaging and relational he was with his team, but it might not have always been that way. Tony tells me in this interview the lessons he learned about leading through stress and economic downfall and how that has made him a better leader through the COVID crisis. I can't wait to see where Tony and Federal Signal go next with their brands. So whether you're an industrial B2B marketer or not, I think you'll find something in this interview to enjoy. Tony, I am so excited to have you on the show, first of all, because it's very rare for me to be able to not only speak to a B2B marketer, but somebody from the sales channel. Um, So I'm excited to bring that perspective to our audience today since we talk so much about sort of marketing and sales integration. So thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's dive in. The first thing I always like to cover is just a little bit of your background. Give our audience a sense of who you are, both personally and professionally. How'd you come up in the world and kind of how'd you get started in your career? Well, I'm from Birmingham, Alabama. I was actually born in born in Atlanta, but moved shortly thereafter to Birmingham. So I was raised there. I've actually lived there three different times. I've lived in Illinois three different times. So it's uh, it's been quite a journey. From a career standpoint, I, uh, I started my career at this organization in 1990. I had worked for, uh, I'd actually was in the military, spent four years in uh, South Dakota with the B-1 bomber. I got out of that and went into, and got into sales, which is really you know, a departure. But anyway, so I joined Guzzler Manufacturing in 1990 as a parts and service support person. And I was good at talking to people. I understood equipment. I mechanical aptitude. And so in the part sales business, they had not really had people that knew anything about equipment. They just had people that could talk. So that was a big departure. It was, it was really successful. So it was, it was a, you know, an opportunity for me to show what I could do. And then I just I moved from there into international uh, business. And I developed our international sales program at that time. So it was very, very small and we grew it significantly over the course of about two years. Then I went into industrial sales for Guzzler in the Southeast, and I managed to, I think it was in 1994. So it was a pretty quick progression from part sales to international sales to unit sales. I was very fortunate at the time that you know, the Southeast had a pretty strong economy. So I managed to be 96, 97, 98. I was salesman of the year. 
And then in 1999, they asked if I would be interested in taking on a sales management position. So I took, uh, in 1999, I took over sales manager. Uh, in 2000, we closed the plant and moved it to Streeter, Illinois. And that's how I got from Birmingham to, to Streeter. So, and then from there, I just continued to grow with the organization. We did some acquisitions. I got into vice president of sales for the whole organization about three years ago. And then they asked if I would be interested in helping them grow the organization because I had managed to create some new businesses during my time in sales leadership. So I'm now taking on strategic business development. So I'm excited. And uh, so that's the long and short of who I am. I love it. I love it. So what was it about your upbringing that had you interested in sort of mechanical things? Uh, I have no clue because to be honest with you, <laughs> I had never, I had never even changed oil in a car. Okay. But I took the ASVAB and they said, you have a really high mechanical aptitude. Interesting. But you're also very relational and those two things don't go together usually. Uh, no, I, but I don't know. I was just very fortunate, I guess. Yeah. So it just worked out that way. So, you know, you get what they give you, you know, you got to, everyone has a skill that was just mine and it just, and it just has worked out. I found the right industry. I think that's really the key, right? Is finding Absolutely. the right, right industry. Well, you and I have some shared connections and that's how we cross paths. And one of the first things that I heard about you was just how relational you were and, and how engaging you were. And I've noticed that as I've had the opportunity to sit on some of your sales calls and see you engage with your team. What was it that you learned about yourself as a leader as you began to take on some of those sort of managerial roles? Or, I mean, even at the vice president level, that's a big job. Uh, yeah, it was a very big job. What I learned is I don't know everything. <laughs> it's a good and, lesson. Uh, you know, I learned that early on uh, that uh, when I was a sales guy, you're as an individual contributor, you think everybody thinks like you, right? Well, I get up, or I get up early, I go to bed late, I answer the phone on the weekends, all that. When I became a leader of the organization, I quickly realized that that's not the case. So you either, you know, you first you've got to digest that that you're not the, you know, you're not. The world doesn't circle around you, right? And and you're you're not the end all be all. So you have to figure out how to inspire people to do great things. So there was a lot of lessons learned in that that first uh, two years, I would say. Yeah, that first managerial role is a, a big one. So talk about some of the things you learned about what it means to be sort of a great salesman as you came up through the sales lane of the business. And what would you want our sort of marketing audience to understand about the role and what it means to have that really frontline access to the customer and dealer? The key to success in my mind is that it's about the customer. It's not about you. So many people go into a sales call, and I've seen this over the years, where they, they talk. I was once told by a pretty wise guy, he said, pretend you have a 10-pound zipper on your mouth. Your job isn't to talk. Your job is to listen, because if you listen, people will tell you what their pains are. And the goal, the role of sales is to find the pain, heal the pain and maintain the relationship. I love that. You know, I was talking actually to one of your sales team members yesterday and he talked about how, you know, he doesn't sell product. He just engages with the customer on their unique business challenge and, you know, asks a lot of questions about what they're trying to accomplish and told a story about how at the end of that discussion, the customer was like, wait, you didn't answer my question. And he's like, well, I think we answered it together, you know, because it was through the dialogue that they were able to figure out what they were trying to accomplish. So my sense is, Tony, that that culture may have come from you. Well, it actually came from a guy that I worked for. He wrote a book uh, called The Journey to the Sale, uh, 54321. And so Bill Mon, he's, he's since passed, but uh, 
I spent five years with him. And um, while he was not a good salesman, he was a very good, he was, he was a, he was a great teacher. And then he had a lot of quirks. And if you ever, the, the book is, uh, I have a copy that's not in print anymore, but he had a lot of demons and stuff like that in his own personal life, but, but he could impart wisdom upon others. And if you listen to people, they tell you their problems, you solve their problems, they buy your product. And then you build relationships and you build loyalty and because you're making people wealthy, at least in, in our world, especially in the, in the direct side, that's what they do. You know, on the municipal side, you're there to help that person accomplish a task as part of their job. They're really not in it to make money, you know, for the city. They're there to protect the infrastructure of the city. So, but it's all about listening and finding the pain and healing the pain. Absolutely. And do you think Federal Signal does that well in terms of your collaborative nature to talk about those customer problems and work with marketing and product development and R&D? Yeah, I think, uh, I, and I can't really speak uh, for the SSG side because that's one side I haven't worked on, but I've worked pretty much, I've worked at Jetstream, I've worked at Guzzer, I've worked at Factor, I've worked at FS Solutions, I've worked at Elgin Sweeper. And the culture. So many brands. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the culture, it, you know, it's very collaborative. And uh, we actually, years ago, in an executive leadership team meeting, you know, Jennifer would have these meetings with, you know, it's 100 or so. Uh, executives and the ESG group, uh, the, you know, five of us got up because we they wanted to understand what makes us do so well because we've been very effective. And, you know, the fact that I was up there and everyone else was an engineer and they were all plant supervisor, general manager, it's the collaboration. You know, we work very close together. Uh, I've always worked close with the general managers. You know, my philosophy is, and I tell this to all the sales teams that have worked for me, you need to go out and look into the plant, look at the people, look at their faces, look at their eyes, because it's your responsibility to keep them employed. So if you're tired and you're worn out and you're complaining, you got to remember that factory worker is it's your job. If you don't do your job, he doesn't have a job. So Wow, that's neat. That's a lot of responsibility to put on them, but it, it kind of makes their job really meaningful, everything they're doing. Exactly. Yeah. You have to do. I mean, that's the truth. Yeah. You have to do your job. Well, I've noticed that collaborative culture in working with you guys, and I love that because I think that's how marketing gets done well, um, is to have all the right stakeholders at the table. Talk a little bit, I'm going to pivot on you a little bit here. You mentioned all the brands that Federal Signal helps manage. And so coming from a sales perspective. I'd love to hear your thought on branding in general. I know you've been a part of a lot of the really successful brands that have gotten stood up, everything from product brands to service brands. And, you know, I've heard some of your team members talk about how critical it is that 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 awareness branding is in market for a while. And you have some very almost like Kleenex level brand names that people have come to, to know. Give us some perspective on what that has looked like in your career and how important that is to the sales process. It's been a struggle because we have such different brands and they were all started by, you know, entrepreneurs, you know, and they came together. And as soon as we bought Jetstream within, you know, a year, the owner didn't want to be there. So he was gone. Guzzer was sold. Uh, and when it was sold, they, the, the founders stayed with the other company. So it became us. We had to figure out how to work together to, to, to keep the brands going, because I think so much in a, in a startup company, the brand is the owner. Yeah. Right. The leader so sets had, the tone, right? And the culture. Right. 
Yeah, so we had to establish the, what that culture looked like, how it was, and we had to brand ourselves as that. And that that came in the messaging, it came in the actions, all of that. Your you know your messaging and and it, there's has to be con, it has to be congruent. You know, when I think of marketing, the messaging is critical in your brochure now and your social, your trade show, all that. But if it doesn't link to your actions, yeah. Boy, it rings hollow and, and you don't get to live on that for very long. So you really have to, it has to be linked together. I always consider sales and marketing, it's two sides of the same coin. Absolutely. They, they, they go hand in hand and, and, and you have to rely on marketing, especially now, to understand that customer. We think we understand the customer and we, we spent years following salespeople's guidance but not always with great results. But you get marketing in there, you get some intelligence in there, you get some data uh, gathering, and then you can really be successful. Totally. And I'm smiling because what you said about it's those interactions is really the evolution of branding to this new buzzword customer experience, right? It's all of those touch points, both in the field, online, in the call center, all those things. Is that a conversation you guys are having right now at Federal Signal? Well, yeah, it's, it's a constant. And depending on the brand, where the brand sits, you mentioned, you know, we have some clean Kleenex brands you know, with the Vactor, the Elgin, Gus, or even there's long, long history. But we have some new brands. And so that's where we had to we had to create all that from the, the ground up. Right. You have to start with what does it look like? What does it taste like? What does it smell like? And then how do you how do you message that not only in ad or brochure or social, but in your actions? Right. Well, what I've learned that I think is unique about your organization and and really smart is that even within marketing, you have those product experts, right, that are sitting there providing the subject matter expertise. How does that help the sales process from a content marketing standpoint? That's another big buzzword we talk about. And you need that consideration level information when you're out in the field to provide that education and training, right? And that's very interesting. You're right, because, you you know, I give the example of TrueVac. It was, you know, we launched a new brand. We launched it with a, you know, very, uh, a lot of imagery, uh, you know, the dark colors. We were appealing to the rough neck, if you will, in the, in the industry. But we never followed up with content because we had some change in personnel. And so that's where we are now. We're having to get back to because the sales team is, has a great image brochure, but it has no content about, you know, the specification of the equipment. What does it really mean? Right. So we're in the process now of, of redeploying, if you will, to make sure that people understand we have a great image. We need to cr- in, increase that brand awareness to get it to the Kleenex, to the Vactor, to the Elgin. And in order to do that, you have to have some meat, right? There has to be some value in there. There has to have some specification for people to sink their teeth into. Because in our business, it's about yardage. It's about gallons. It's about, I mean, output of pumps and blowers and stuff like that. Because ultimately, that's what does the work. You know, so I can have a really very attractive piece of equipment, but if it doesn't operate <laughs> effectively, then it doesn't, you know, it's just, it's just a paperweight. Well, I talk a lot about on the show how Semantle focuses heavily on industrial marketing and those products are complex, you know, being able to like configure the right solution for the customer probably takes a lot of energy from your salespeople to consult. How do you train them to learn the complexity of your product line? It's a uh, trial and error. Well, you know, you can give an initial idea, right? We have this tank, this blower, this water pump. But it's really the experience in the field and actually digging a hole 
or cleaning a sewer, that you get the, the an understanding because it's a combination of all those. And it's really a finesse on, you know, you've got a water pump and you've got a blower, but if you don't use the right nozzle, the machine doesn't operate quite right. And you can't, it's hard to train everyone on every application, you know, for a sewer cleaner, you know, this nozzle works great in grease. You don't know that until you see, you know, unless you've seen grease is the size of your desk, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Has marketing helped with that at all? I think training is an area that marketing often doesn't think to play in enough. Yeah, I, they actually, they don't or they haven't historically. And what I mean by that, they've helped put, the, you know, they've helped put together training things recently. And we can we can talk, you know, about uh, contact with selling. But historically, no, they've been in the image business, you know, a brand building, brand awareness, content creation for the older brands, but yeah, never so much in the form of, of education. Internal. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Again, I want to talk a little bit about sort of this industrial marketing space. Um, it's it's a big focus for us, and that's why I love working with Federal Signal now. Um, I feel like we're a really good fit. I want to talk a little bit about a couple of themes that I see in working with these kinds of companies. They tend to be pretty complex matrix organizations, and by that I mean... Lots of products, many industries, many applications, as you mentioned. So even communicating internally within the walls of the organization can be challenging. And then they also have sort of very complex distribution systems, many audience segments, right? You mentioned that earlier, you have your commercial side of the business and your municipal side of the business. So talk a little bit about those two things and what challenges or even opportunities that has created, you know, as you guys work together to come up with the right strategies. Right. You know, the hard part is making sure that each uh, each brand, each product, each market segment gets equal time with marketing. Historically, it's been the strongest voice gets the most uh, time. Uh, fortunately, I've been the strong voice, so, so I've always uh, I've always collaborated. I can see that. I've always collaborated with marketing. I've helped you know create campaigns. I, a, so because I thought I always found that if I could work with marketing then I could get done what I needed to get done as opposed to saying, Hey, you guys need to do this by the, you know, the 12th of July and good luck. You know, sometimes you'd get it, sometimes you wouldn't. So it's tough because we have a finite resource. It's a combined resource marketing for, for the, the group is just, a, just that a group. There isn't a, from a marketing communication standpoint, it's a single little entity and they, they create messaging and all that for all the groups. Now, we do now have product managers in each brand, which has been really beneficial. It's helped, uh, one, you have a, a subject matter expert at the factory that can assist when there's questions about the product design. Before, engineering would just take it upon themselves. In some cases, it was great because the engineers understood the application. Sometimes it wasn't so great because they really didn't understand the application. Marketing is that bridge. You know, and they, they actually are the, what I like to call them, the, the uh, protector of the product. You know, so, you know, marketing's role is to understand what the customer needs, help di- digest that into a meaningful product profile, and then give that to the engineers and say, these are the, these are the, the things you figure out how, right? It's not, it's not marketing's role to figure out how, just what. Yeah. 
Well, what you mentioned about prioritizing, I think, is so hard, especially for a complex organization of, you know, what do we fund? What is going to drive the most growth for the organization? And it sounds like you have a really strong sort of strategic planning table that works together to figure that out. Yeah. And, um, you know, it gets back to that collaboration. You know, when when you're sitting with uh, you know, the general managers and they have a, either a product or a brand specific to them, our mutual friend Sam has, you know, he has Vactor, Guzzer and Truvac all under his. So he's got a pretty significant uh, chunk of ESG, uh, Elgin Sweeper, which is a big part of our business, but it's a single brand. So the managing of that isn't quite as difficult uh, from, you know, making sure that the marketing here is focused on that. But it is complex, but we try to work together. We understand, when, you know, in, in our strategy planning, if, if we see a market that we're going to target, for instance, the Truvac uh, as an example, we we dabbled in vacuum excavation, but once we decided it's a strategy, we were going to focus on the utility sector. We built, we came up with, with a brand, we came up with additional products, we came up with a distribution strategy, and we you know, went to town. That's what's fun about marketing. It's not just the pretty pictures, right? It's the whole go-to-market, right? And as part of that, I wanted to ask you about your your audience, your customer segment. Um, one of the things that we see a lot in working with brands like Truvac and Federal Signal is that the the end user buyer is evolving to a younger sort of new generation who has different expectations. Is that true in your business? And what are some of the trends you're seeing? <laughs> well, it's, it's you know, I, and it was a struggle. A good example is now everything, all your imagery is like real short, choppy. Yeah, and it, which drives me insane. But that's a younger generation. They 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 don't want to. We don't have any attention span, right? Right. So you know, I was just looking at. We were updating our websites, and they had a, they had these videos, and the videos were just choppy. And you know, it's not for me. I'm not buying a, a guzzler, so I need to quit worrying about it because it, the younger generation wants that short stuff. They also want more information on the internet. So and it's got to be a you know, it's got to attract them, engage them, and inform them. And we also find, at least I do, is that social, if you go to LinkedIn or even Facebook, there's these groups, you know, it's not now just a company, it's groups of people, you know, Water Blasters of America, Hydrovac Nation. And these are younger generation people and they they take pride in what they do. They like being part of a group. So you have to figure out how to engage them, be part of the group. You know, I I mentioned the uh, Truvac that the black and gray and green, that's really targeted to a you know a much younger audience that that is interested in, in seeing some flash. Back a long time ago, trucks were gray or blue and and people thought that was great, you know. <laughs> so. Well, what I love about that example, so there's another person that I interviewed on season four. His name is Bob Hoffman, and he's a big disruptor in the advertising industry. He takes sort of the opposite point of view on everything. And he contends that like this idea of brand love isn't really a thing, like especially in the consumer market, you don't really care like what's in your refrigerator, whatever. But I think in the B2B space, that's different. I think in the B2B space, consumers really do love their brands, right? Especially in the trucking market. Like, you know which OEM you want to go after. Or like you said, these these social media platforms where people are just having conversations with each other about the products. Is that true? Yeah, well, do you I see would, that? Yeah, you could see that in, 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 you know, I still see that in automotive. You look at, there's an argument, there's arguments of Ford versus Chevy in a pickup truck, right? But yeah, in, in, in our business, it's definitely brand loyalty, is not always brand loyalty. It's uh, relationship loyalty. They do like the brand. They grew up with the brand. They'll give that brand the most leeway with, you know, if making a mistake or not making a mistake. 
but you know, it also has to have that relationship piece to it. So, and usually the relationship lives at the dealer level in some cases, right? If it's not a direct sales model. Exactly. So yeah, especially for our municipal product lines, the end user municipality is looking for the dealer to help them make sure they make the right decision. The guy buying it, the, the purchasing agent and the fleet manager don't actually go and use it every day. You know, so they're taking a gamble. So they want that trust that they've got the local dealer sales guy that shows up every other week. And they know him and they know where he lives and they know who his kids are. And, and yeah, there's a, there's a certain, you know, that builds that, re, that brand equity from that perspective because it's associated with that person. That's good and bad, though. If that person leaves, you got to rebuild. But Oh, totally. Talk a little bit about how you support your dealer network. So my understanding is that you have many independent dealers, but you've also built up this new brand called FS Solutions. So FS Solutions is not, um, it's an aftermarket business. Our dealer network is just that, right? Just the same description I had. Municipalities want local service. They want local service and support. Someone that they can can ensure that their, their equipment's up when they need to be up to give them the right, to help guide them in their decision-making process of which product, you know, specifying the complication of the blower, the, the water, all that. And, and it's critical to have that distribution. Uh, it's, uh, municipalities, they thrive on it. They need it. FS Solutions was created as an aftermarket support business for our, our commercial side. So you can think about Guzzler, an example. We had a, a service tech. Uh, we had a parts location. But we have, you know, customers in, you know, all 50 states. So, you know, how do you service them? How do you make sure the parts, you know, we were on central time, but you have a whole lot of time zones and you have international business as well. So we, we started a business that was just servicing equipment. We would take used equipment. We would fix it up and sell it because we had a, we had a bunch of, we would take trade-ins and they would sit and rot before we did this, which was a really bad business decision. So we started servicing that. We started doing some refurbishments and then we started selling service to, you know, for people that didn't want to do the major rebuilds on their equipment. They needed a blower replacement or a hydraulic pump replacement or a truck rewired. And then from there, it, it continued to grow because it was, we found a need. So we opened another location in Houston. That was really our first standalone place because the concentration of vacuum trucks between New Orleans and Brownsville, Texas, was the most concentration anywhere in the United States. Interesting. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so we opened in Houston, and then it just started expanding because we saw an opportunity. We saw a need, so we started to open additional locations. We got into the water blast rental business because you could see a sea change where people stopped wanting to buy so much. The contracts for cleaning went from four-year contracts to one-year contracts, and People were reluctant to buy equipment because of that, you know. So rental became an opportunity. So we we did that. And that's really how FS Solutions came to be. It was a couple of different segments and there were different leaders. It was very siloed. And so we just combined them, created a brand, added some additional solutions. So we had a full solution set to, to the aftermarket. And so, and that's that's what it is. That's awesome. Yeah, sometimes that aftermarket space uh, or that service side of the business can be as profitable as, you know, the main product lines. It's it's the long-term relationship piece. Yeah, well, you got, you know, you may mention about the industry changing and people changing, and it was, you know, 
these people didn't want to repair their trucks and they didn't, you know, they didn't want to, you know, and a lot of these guys became owner operators. When I first got into this business, there were business people running these organizations. They'd happened to see a place to make money and they went into it. But over the course of time, it became the operator that worked for that businessman that the plant liked and said, hey, if you get a vacuum truck or a water blaster, I'll give you the work. And so they had these people that had no real business acumen, but had operational acumen. So we had to start helping them be better at what they do. And that's where these service centers were there because they were shoestring, right? They were, you know, shoebox businesses. So money in, money out. I made money or I didn't. Yeah. Well, what I love about you and your your tenure with the organization is you've seen so much change and you've seen so much product design, you know, you know, new things that you've been able to stand up, which is a space I love to be able to build something out of nothing. But a question that I have for you, and you and I talked a little bit about this previously, is how do you get your hands on data that helps you make these very big go-to-market decisions? You said how challenging that is in your industry from a market share perspective, but then there's the opposite challenge where there's so much data inside our organizations, you know, about our customers and it's about aggregating it all. So talk to me a little bit about that conversation inside your wall. It's really tough because there are, you know, these are non-reporting industries for the most part. So your market share data comes from your win-loss. That's really the only way you're going to get it and, you know, and or salespeople mapping the area and trying to find all the assets. But you don't know what you don't know. You can't get into the four, you know, the fence of a plant and go and look in there. Oh, I see a truck. You really can't do that. So that's a big struggle. But, uh, you know, you mentioned data. There's reams of data about you know, you can I, I go online all the time. You're looking at the ISM information. You're looking at the conference board. Uh, you're looking at all these different things. You're trying to guess what's going to happen. Well, the market's you know going to be up. And in our space, there's no real indicator. There's no bellwether from that standpoint. You you know, from the industrial sector, you're looking at a variety of things, but how someone's going to spend from a, to clean their plant? There's just not that much data out there. So. You're taking uh, very high level things and trying to boil it down into something and, and then you it's still a guess. Sure. So many of the brands we work with, Tony, struggle with what their ultimate measure of success is going to be. You know, we talked about customer experience and loyalty earlier. Do you guys have something like that that's sort of your measuring stick or how do you measure success in an organization? We do measure success from a customer retention standpoint in the aftermarket side. Because you can have a customer on the aftermarket side and have never sold them a, a whole good because the, com- you know, the components, the, the accessories, all that fits on every vehicle. So that's how we have a, we, an outside firm we work with and they're, they're helping measure how many, how many people are still buying, who is at risk, those types of things. From a whole good standpoint, it's a finite group. You know the cities, you know the names of the cities, and we track that from, you know, from our win-loss standpoint. And they're not really making any more cities, so you kind of know who they are. But from a from a contractor standpoint, it's really tough because there's contractors in, there's contractors out. There's, again, no reporting of that. So that's where the, the sales team on the street and the product managers out on the field help gather. That's the, that's the best way for us to gather data. It's a good answer. You know, one of the questions I had for you, we're actually releasing a white paper later this summer that talks about the customer experience challenge within complex B2B organizations. And this white paper contends that really a lot of the problem with doing this well is the lack of alignment because, you know, there's the voice of the business. You got all the leaders sitting around the table 
you know, debating what the right solution is, but then you've got the voice of the dealer and the voice of the customer. And if all of those things can't come together in a clear picture that is measurable, sometimes it's hard to know where to focus your energy. So it sounds like you guys are making steps in all of those directions, but would you agree with that? Or would you you phrase that a little differently? No, I would say you're right. There's three components to it. It's the customer, the dealer, and yourself. You know, we have a high level strategy and we work very, very, very close with our dealers and we're out on the street with them. We're not, it's not just go visit, you know, have a steak dinner and play golf, <laughs> you know. Sure. That's what it used to be, it seems like, but not yeah, anymore. Yeah. Yeah. You're out there demoing with a salesperson. You're out there. I mean, we work hand in hand and our, so the messagings are aligned and, you know, and our marketing department works with our dealers so that, that we have alignment there. But really, because we're out there together and we're seeing the customer, that leads us, right, to know what should the messaging be? What should our actions be? Where do we need to improve? Then I think when you talk about customer experience, it's really about self-reflection and self-correction. Yeah, we have to know what we're doing wrong and, and internalize that as an organization or as a person. You have to delight the customer. That's the ultimate goal. And if you do that and you have a reliable product that stand, that's fortunate for me, I can say this because I have these great brands that they're behind me to support me, but it's what we do and how do we make sure that customer is delighted in each and every piece. And that, you know, that is the struggle because you talk about we have Elgin, we have Vactor, we have TrueVac, we have Guzzard, and then we have an aftermarket business. It can be siloed sometimes, but we're only as good as our weakest link. Right. So we have to make sure that we're aligned and everybody understands the strategy. Everybody knows how to execute. Everybody understands that. How do you measure success? It's with customer delight. Yes. I love that. The the communication cascade of the strategy, right, allows everybody to sort of move in the same direction. And I think that really is what defines a healthy organization. I do have one last question before we switch to learn more about you. And that is, you know, earlier in the conversation, you talked about the integration of sales and marketing and how those are, you know, just two sides of the same coin. Give us some examples in your experience of what some of the the best examples of that have been in your career, whether that's event marketing or like you mentioned, the demos in the field. And then I guess to tag on to that. How are you guys now thinking about sales and marketing as it relates to data and lead management to make sure that the interactions your customers are taking actually get passed to the sales team in ways that are usable? Well, yeah, that latter, it's great. Technology helps there. Uh, I've been very fortunate in the, the marketing teams that I've worked with are very collaborative to begin with. In fact, at Guzzler, my best friend was a, was a product manager slash marketing manager. And so I can tell you, you know, when sales would struggle, you know, we would have the economy would start to slow down or, you know, our industry has it can stop on a dime. It doesn't really have a rhyme or reason sometimes. But, you know, I could go and sit with, the, with you know, with marketing and say, listen, we're struggling here. We need some messaging. What can we do differently? And we actually have done a number of campaigns. But one that sticks in my mind was 12 reasons to trade your truck in now. Perfect. Yeah. And it was it was it was really very simple because they were all 12, it was 12 months of the year. In all 12 of them, it was the exact same thing. It was the amount of money, the average expense, you know, based on the five year of what a truck is. Now it's time to trade your truck. And it was how much money you're spending, how much money you're saving, how you could depreciate the new asset. 
and it was a great campaign because we got a sea of response from it and we started selling new trucks. We got trade in so we could sell used. But it was just a, it was a collaboration. It was like, you know, Kevin, hey, man, it's things are getting tough out there. I need to figure out how to stimulate, push the market, you know, and that was it. I love that because that's sort of a deeper in the funnel strategy, not just like a buy our product, but it creates some intrigue. The customers probably want to maybe do a calculator or engage with a, a salesperson to have that conversation. And I think that's really the challenge is coming up with those kinds of ideas that make customers want to learn more. Right. And from today, you know, when you talk about lead management, things of that nature, we, we struggled for years. Our idea of lead management, would we'd have, you know, 150 names at a trade show. And we would dump all of those into the, the CRM and say, okay, here's your leads. So the sales team, you know, they called the first three. And when the first three said, no, man, I just wanted to get a hat. Then they weren't good leads, right? <laughs> yeah, they didn't follow through on the rest of them. And so that was a real struggle. And it's only been recently we brought some new, uh, new blood into the marketing team and brought a fresh look at digital. You know, and how can we manage that better and how can we, you know, ensure leads? So now we're, we're capturing leads, we're qualifying leads, we're getting to the salesperson and we're having situations where within seven days of receiving the lead, we've got an order. That's so cool. I love those stories. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, that's the, that's the great thing about technology that you can capture that information quickly. You can disseminate it quickly. You can, they can follow up and, and that's back to that customer delight, right? If I want information and it takes you a month to get back to me, I'm not interested. It's like it has to be now. Everything is now. So being able to take that interest to a phone call or to whatever the ask is in such a short window leads to customer delight and leads to more business. Absolutely. Cool. All right. So we're going to switch gears a little bit. I am curious about some of your core beliefs or secrets of success as a leader. You know, you talked earlier about learning that you don't know it all and that you really got to listen. But if you had some advice to pass along to others, what would that be? Again, when, when everyone around you has lost their mind, keep yours. I, I'll tell you, you know, because when I became a manager and I thought everyone knew, was like me and found out they weren't, that was one thing. But as I mentioned, we moved from, uh, we closed our plant in Birmingham and moved to Schreeder in, in 2000. Well, what I didn't tell you is that Vactor and Guzzer were fierce competitors at one time. And my job in life was to crush Vactor. So, you know, I went from being in a, Guzzer was my home. I grew up there and I knew everyone in the plant. And everyone knew me and we were like a big family. And so I take on this manager role. I find out that everybody's not like me and now I have to move. To Illinois and be with people that know who I am and know what I did. And, and then in 2001, as I'm trying to, you know, still get my bearings, we have 9-11 and the economy went, you know, to hell and I didn't handle it very well. I was so stressed out. I was not acting, you know, I wasn't being a manager. I was being a dictator. I was yelling at people. And I mean, I really was not, I was just not acting like a true leader should be. So I, I remember sitting and reflecting back to self-reflection, self-correction that, you know, this isn't working because leadership is about keeping your head in times of stress, struggle, or panic. And I remember, you know, my dad was a history buff. And so I went to Warm Springs, Georgia. I knew all the presidents and FDR and his fireside chats came to my mind. And I said, so that's an example of someone that was in serious chaos with the Depression and then World War II. 
but he was able to calm the fears of the of the masses by just keeping his head and talking about things. So I actually, I said, okay, I have to change. I have to become a leader. I have to calm them so they can calm their customers so we can get back to the, you know, doing business. And that was, a, that was a great, it was really terrible to go through, but what a great lesson. And so since then, as we've had ebbs and flows, I've been able to keep my head and act as a leader instead of a boss that, you know, was just, you know, so. That's such a good lesson for me and our organization right now. We're in a, a period of fast growth and change. And so it can be tempting to, when you land that new piece of business or you lose that key employee to have that, oh shit moment, right? Like that's what I call it. Like who can I call to freak out on? But luckily I have some really great team members and partners that can balance me with that. But that is kind of the expectation of a leader. Would you say that that period that you talked about was one of your key failures that you learned a lot from? Or yes. That is, okay. that is, that by far was the most growth. It was humbling from the standpoint, all those things that were going on. When you go from being like the sales guy that everybody loves because you're the sales guy of the year, three years in a row, and you're on top of the mountain, right? You think you're great. And then you move, you lose all those relationships. You move into a, maybe a hostile environment, but it wasn't, don't get me wrong, but you know, your perception. And then we have a catastrophe like 9-11, and then you have the economic fallout of that. I was very humbled, and but it certainly changed the way I act and the way I think and allowed me to continue to, you know, prosper. Right, right. Well, you know, 9-11 is so clear to me. I think it is to everybody. I was I was actually in college at that time and it brought you back to your values. You know, it really made you, to your point, self-reflect on what's important to me and how am I going to go forward. And I think the past year of our life, again, with the COVID crisis, has again made us do that big step back and say, who are we going to be on the other side of this? How can we pull from our history, but also reinvent ourselves? So tell us a little bit now about what Federal Signal's thinking about in this new space and how that's changed you guys' point of view. Well, it's, it's really interesting. It, it didn't so much change our strategy. It accelerated the things we needed to do to do this. So for a long time, we've talked about, I'm going to call it contactless selling, but we had always talked about some type of 3D technological ability to walk, do walk-arounds because our equipment, while mobile, going from sea to shining sea is expensive and long. And so how do you get in front of people quicker, right? And so... We had always talked about doing some type of, uh, you know, 360s. So you could do a walk around on a, on a computer screen or something like that. So when we got locked down, it was like, okay, well, now's the time. So we put together, and you think about it, you, you're contactless. We're having this discussion this way. We probably, five years ago, we would have, I would have flown or you would have flown or driven and we would have sit in a room together. But so contactless selling is a, is a great opportunity and it's being embraced by people, even though they can see people now, they still want to go through this walk around. So it's a way to educate a person that doesn't know about your product. It's a way to support after you've done a demonstration, go back to the person with a 360 to answer any additional questions, get that comfort. Because again, you know, the municipality wants to be comfortable. They're making that right decision. And so that's one way. The other way is we're doing team meetings. We don't necessarily have to be in front of each other. We can get together that saves so much time, right? It, it allows all of us to be more productive and efficient. Absolutely. Not, that uh, travel time takes a lot. The downside is sometimes people will shut off their camera and they'll be on their phone instead of listening to you. In fact, I'm leaving today for Minnesota to go visit a dealer. 
just to have that face-to-face conversation and get some feedback. So I don't think that will ever go away. But this is a new way to enhance the communication, accelerate the communication. And it's more accepted now. It's not, I think, you know, had there not been a pandemic, somebody would have felt this was a cold interaction. You know, you didn't feel, you didn't feel, you know, I was worthy enough for you to come drive over to my office. But now it's like, no, let's do it this way. It's easier. I don't have to get, get up and, Absolutely. No, I'm very excited about the other side, the hybrid culture. I think it's been really good in a lot of ways. We'll get back to the rest of the interview in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Symantle. I happen to know a thing or two about them because, well, I'm one of the owners. We are an industrial consumer marketing firm with an obsessive focus on customer experience. We create killer campaigns, but we also help organizations create programs that align back to their business strategies. Most importantly, we have a lot of fun and love what we do. And this year marks 40-ish years of doing it. Unfortunately, there's not enough time to explain the ish on this promo. But if you know us, you'll know it makes perfect sense. And if you don't, please reach out. We'd love to talk. Or you can head to samantle.com slash blog to learn more about us with articles, tips and tricks, do-it-yourself tools, and much more to help you keep learning and growing right alongside us. All right. So my very last question that I ask every interviewee, because I think it's insightful and it helps us all think a little bit. What are some questions that you're struggling with right now that you'd love to pose to others to get some feedback on? You know, I thought about that. In our industry, the product separation is minimal. You know, it used to be we had very different power systems, very different structural techniques on how we built equipment, but it's becoming more and more commoditized. And so with the struggle for us, and there's really no disruptor, I can't come up with a way to vacuum up something without vacuuming. I can't find a way to clean a sewer. I can find a way how to not use a sewer, but there's no major disruptor in there. So we continue to strive to that. Don't get me wrong, but what do people do when your product's becoming a commodity? You know, toilet paper. How do, you, how do you separate yourself in the toilet paper world? That's a challenge. Yeah, and for us, it's, it's, it's really a challenge. We have brand equity, but brand equity won't last forever. Somebody, sooner or later, some of our competitors are going to be old as well. You think about the car industry like a Tesla, although I think they're a disruptor because they started the, the electrification of equipment but or vehicles, but still, I mean, their name is up better than Ford or GM. It's it's not as stoic, if you will, but it's there. So, so yeah, I would just like to understand what people are thinking and, and how do how do they find a way to separate themselves, you know, in a product and a, a market where things are just commoditized. I love the question, and I think it stems back to if I could give my two cents. When you talk about understanding those customer insights and problems. You know, the conversations we're having now with marketers is it's not about product selling. It's about let's understand the problem and then let's revolutionize the business model to meet the need of that problem, even if it's something we don't produce today. And what I love about you, Tony, is you've done that so many times in your career. And I know your next step is actually to go figure out a lot of those strategic challenges. So I'm hopeful and excited that we get to continue to um, work together and partner and get to know each other through that process. Yeah, you know, I'm excited. This is a new challenge and it's harder work than I thought it would be. (laughs) (laughs) It's fun work. It's a good challenge. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I've learned a lot about, you know, Federal Signal and the sales team and I'm just excited to stay in touch. So thanks again. All right. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
like I said at the outset, Tony is very relational and engaging, and I think he's easy to talk to. That's why he's worked his way all the way up to the vice president of global sales and now taking on new strategic challenges. I especially love how Tony is so focused on the customer experience and continuing to involve the conversation at Federal Signal. His team motto of find the pain, feel the pain, and maintain the relationship is something that all marketers can learn from to move beyond just selling the product and really thinking about putting the customer first. To learn more about Tony's background, you can visit our website at marketingsweats.com where he will post his bio and provide more links. Thanks again for tuning in this season. If you like what you hear, don't forget to find us wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe or download all of our seasons at marketingsweats.com.